Navigating tricky seas on a sailboat you built yourself can definitely leave a lasting impression. It's so easy to get lost in these islands especially, and it's dangerous. I mean, you have 15, 16 knot rapids with rocks everywhere, with no visibility into the water. You feel so alive having gone through it, you wouldn't exchange it for anything. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, author Ferenc Maté takes us out to sea. Guides to Rome show us how water makes the city come to life. Water, for me, is the soundtrack of a city. If I had to associate one sound with my city, it would be the trickling of the water in the fountains. The water systems that they use today are very much based on what the ancient Romans did. And we'll hear how France is an ideal place to enjoy all kinds of outdoor recreation, but just don't expect to make new friends at the gym. We don't really do a lot of sports like jogging or going to the gym. We do a lot more hiking. We're having fun outdoors and going with the flow in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Baroque fountains to quench your thirst and monuments gushing with sparkling water. Aqueducts that served a million ancient Romans. And even a goddess known as the Venus of the Sewer. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In just a moment, we'll explore the role of water in Rome, past and present, through the sites you can dip into on your next visit. We'll also set sail in a bit with author Ferenc Maté. While he operates one of Tuscany's finest wineries, he also has salt water in his veins. He'll tell us how his sailing voyages around the world have inspired his mystery novels from the South Seas to British Columbia. And later in the hour, we'll hear how the French work off all those croissants with a vigorous variety of outdoor sports and recreation. Let's begin with a taste of how history comes to life when you go with the flow in Rome with the help of two of my favorite guides. Joining us from Rome is Francesca Caruso and Jean Openshaws, the co-author of the art and history sections of the Rick Steves City Guides. Jean and Francesca, buongiorno. Ciao. Thank you for having us, Ciao. Water in Rome. I mean, when I think of Rome, and I've been going there all my life, I just, you know, I can think of water. You, you're walking through the city at night, and you hear the gush of the Trevi Fountain in the distance, even before you get there. You can uh, just think of the, the beauty of just enjoying a public fountain when you're really thirsty halfway through a, a, a grueling day of sightseeing with the beating heat in the middle of the summer and so on. What does water mean to you, Francesca, about Rome? I would say that water, for me, is the soundtrack of a city. If I had to associate one sound... With my city, it would be the trickling of the water in the fountains, a Trevi fountain that you hear before you see. And I would also think of it as uh, one of the fundamental elements of the city, a city built on a river, a city of people who were able to move water like nobody else, a city that was close to a coast. So water is really an essential part of its identity. Romans were famous as engineers, and they could move water with their, with their brilliance that way to accommodate the needs of a million people in ancient Rome. Gene, what about water? Some of the grandest monuments that we know have to do with water. The aqueducts that the Romans had. You know, the, the ancient Romans, they didn't drink the Tiber River water. They didn't like it. They, they flushed their sewage into it through the Cloaca Maxima. Instead, they loved the spring water from the hillsides, mostly east of the city, and they spent much of their manpower and energy trying to transport that water to their city so they could drink all this fresh water. You know, you look at these aqueducts, these huge bridges of stone. They're all over Europe where the Romans settled. And in Rome, they had, I think, eight or nine ancient aqueducts that brought fresh water into the city. Imagine people back then who had fresh running water. At least the rich had it, the poor it could be brought in, and, and they got their water from the public fountains, hence the legacy of these great fountains that we see today. Even the Trevi Fountain, wasn't that sort of the celebration of the end of an aqueduct? It was, and it, what it was was the celebration of the renewal of that ancient aqueduct, because these ancient ones, as Rome was falling, one of the great ways that the Goths figured out to end the Roman Empire was to cut off their water supply, and that's what they did, the Goths did. So wait a second. So with the fall of Rome, you've still got a Roman community. They don't have the strength to defend their infrastructure. Barbarians, they can see the Achilles heel of, of what was left of Rome was their water supply, the aqueducts. The Goths surrounded the city, huh. and they cut it off and plunged Rome into a thousand years of darkness and B.O. And, to, <laughs> and, and today, one of my favorite sites in Rome is the Aqueduct Park outside of town. 
It's, and these, they're like loping into the city. You know that image when you win solitaire on your computer screen and you got all those cards going boop, 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 boop. It's just like that with these arches coming in. And you think 2,000 years ago, that brought water into the city of Rome. Francesca, you live near the Aqueduct Park, don't you? I do. It's just a couple of uh, subway stations from my house, and I often go there. Now people, you can see people playing golf by in the ruins of the Aqueduct. <laughs> people the... go running there, and they go bike riding, and you just oh. see these colossal ruins amidst the pine trees, and people still go there, and I sometimes I wonder what they think when they look at the majesty of the past compared to the Rome mm. of today. But if I lived there like you, I would go there at the magic hour in the evening when the light is very warm and the colors are rich and people are out with their dogs strolling and so on, and you got that history and that beautiful break from the intensity of the city. Yes, yes, and always that sense of the ancient and the modern together. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that you can go jogging by a Roman <laughs> aqueduct. That, yeah. It's always the past and the present that coalesce and become the experience that Rome is. Francesca, what was the population of ancient Rome at its peak? Well, the latest calculations are at the peak of uh, 1,200,000. A million 200,000 bladders. Now, imagine that. Jean talked about the, the sewer there at the Roman Forum. We all go to the Roman Forum. What's the name of the sewer line? It's the Cloaca Maxima, the Great Drain, 6th <laughs> century before Christ. 6th century, they, a great drain, and it goes from the, the common grounds of the Seven Hills, the, the Forum, yes. right down into the Tiber River. Right into the Tiber River, and there are sections of it that uh, actually still still work. Is that right? Still so work today, yeah. They actually engineered that in. Yes, and it even had its own goddess. I have to say she's one of my favorites, the Venus of the Sewer. <laughs> the, what's, yeah. what's, what's her name? The Venere Cloacina, named after the, uh, the great uh, sewer itself. So. One of the most fascinating bits of uh, Roman engineering I've seen when it comes to water is the distribution cap or whatever, where the 30-mile-long aqueduct ends of the Pontugard in southern France. It goes to Nîmes. Have you been there, Jean, where they've got, there's a, uh, the, and it's interesting because you've got all the water rushing into the city, and then you've got this big well, and the lower pipes would be, when there's less water, would go to power the neighborhood wells, and the higher pipes, when there's more water, they could afford to kind of waste it, and it would go to power rich people's decorative fountains. Does that make sense to you, uh, Francesca, in, in a Roman engineering sense? Yeah, certainly it would. With the aqueducts outside the city, there was one main point where they came into the city and then sort of branched out so that all of the neighborhoods had it. And they had to dole out the water in a way that was thoughtful on where do we really need it and where is it just a nicety. And one of the most famous cisterns was actually used for something else, and that is the Mamertine prison. This empty cistern became a prison where supposedly Saints Peter and Paul were put into prison. And you can go there today as you walk out of the uh, Roman Forum. There's the prison, and you pay a few bucks, go in, and you can go down into that big uh, oval-shaped cistern, and uh, they put a floor on it to uh, house prisoners, and it's quite a... And and it's actually a stop on the pilgrimage trail. Yes, it is, it is. We're letting the waters of modern Rome open up that city's amazing history with a fresh perspective on one of the greatest cities on Earth. Our guides right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Francesca Caruso and Jean Openshaw. Francesca, you took me to the basement of San Clemente once, uh, way down below. I mean, uh, San Clemente is famous because it's a church where you can go down like three or four layers to find different places of worship over the last 2,000 years. Way at the bottom, you showed me some ancient plumbing. There's actually a a natural spring that goes underneath that, one of the 200 natural springs that are in the underground of Rome. And it seems that the people who lived in one of the homes that are now below San Clemente are actually able to use and had access to that spring water coming through their home. So imagine having... So they just... That would have been a luxury back then. It would have been a luxury. And they grabbed it. When you think of Rome, you think of fountains, wonderful fountains, public fountains, uh, a lot of great Baroque statuary on the fountains decorating them. What are some highlights that way for somebody visiting Rome? Well, certainly I would choose as a as a Baroque fountain, maybe not so much Trevi, which is sort of light Baroque, but I would certainly choose the Fountain of the Four Rivers by Gian Lorenzo Bernini in Piazza Navona. I think the reason that it's so splendid is that uh, Bernini was really able to bring nature and culture together, and he was able to bring this almost kinetic quality, it's been called, of a water to the composition of the fountain itself. He has lions, he has palm trees, he has these four immense men that represent the four continents. And it's really, it's very theatrical, but you really, it's the way that the stone and the water sort of meld to create this uh, work of art that's, for me, unbelievable. Now, that would, be, get excited uh, about that would be sort of textbook Baroque. And when we think about Rome, we think no-nonsense engineering. How do we keep a million people uh, not thirsty? And then if you think of Baroque, it is more theatrical, isn't it, uh, Jean? Uh, when you think of Baroque fountains, wouldn't that be sort of a 
great opportunity for a Baroque artist to do his thing. It is, and, and when Francesca says theatrical, you know, if I were to pick my favorite fountain, it would be the Trevi Fountain. How much more theatrical can that be? It literally has almost like a stage backdrop. They mm-hmm. use the building behind the statuary to be the backdrop for this thing, and then you see this figure of, well, not Neptune, it's Oceanus, but uh, this river god surfing through this truly avalanche of water. It's the melding of engineering. It's got like 24 different water spouts creating this huge gusher of water, Mm -hmm. and yet it also is completely decorative. So it's that, that multimedia of statues and lights and water that really makes what we think of as Baroque. To see that at night, floodlit, with all the energy that the people provide and the happiness there, it's, it's still doing its thing. Francesca. So you see, everything that we've been saying goes back to the same point, that water is everything, because it was for hygiene, it was for drinking, but it was for decoration. So this ability that the Romans had to, a thousand years ago, bring this incredible amount of water to the city has given origin to all of these different things that make up the identity and the soul of a city. It's an amazing thing, and, when you, and you go right back to, to the very, very foundations of Rome, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is Rome was on the Tiber River because in old days you needed to be on a, on a river for transportation. It was as far up the river as you could go, uh, as you could navigate, in the first place where they crossed it with a bridge. And it was where the Etruscan civilization to the north met the Greek civilization to the south. So talk about a pivotal place based on a river with that water as the reason for Rome to be where Rome is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it was ideal. So as you say, it was the meeting point between the north where the Etruscans were, the Greeks in the south, and it was also sort of halfway between the areas in the, uh, in the interior and the coast, so absolutely perfect. And because of the island in the Tiber, it made crossing the river easier, and it was also possible to build two shorter bridges connecting to That's the... That's right. Yes, exactly. And you can see that today. That's one of the... I think those the bridges actually survives? Well, the most ancient uh, bridge in Rome is from 62 BC. It's the Pons Fabricius, and I find it so exciting to be able to walk across such an ancient bridge and imagine all of the generations that crossed it before me. It's those moments in Rome. Francesca Caruso and Gino Pinchot, this has been so much fun talking about water as an integral part of our Roman experience. Thanks so much. Grazie a te, Rick. Thank you. Grazie mille. Waters might get a little choppy next as author, vintner, and shipbuilder Ferenc Mate takes us for a rollicking seafaring adventure. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. His own life story is itself a dramatic adventure. It starts with escaping from communist Hungary as a boy during the failed revolt against the Russians back in 1956. Later, Ferenc Maté would figure out how to build his own houseboat as a college student in Vancouver, and eventually he'd sail the world with his wife from chilly British Columbia 
to tropical South Sea Tahiti. Since writing a bestseller do-it-yourself guide to building your own boat in 1970, Ferenc has published a number of books on different topics. They include works about the life lessons he's learned from restoring a centuries-old friary to create his dream home in Tuscany in Italy. And his seafaring voyages have inspired a pair of highly praised mystery novels that weave together history and action in a genre that could be called the romantic anthropological thriller. Ferenc, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. love this topic. You can imagine a romantic adventure at sea, but anthropological thriller. <laughs> How does that work into a sea uh, adventure? A friend quoted that, another author. I've always been fascinated by old ancient cultures, and we have so many of them. We have right near us, we have uh, the islands just across from the northern tip of Vancouver Island, which has so severe climate and so severe landscape that the mountains, the steep mountains do not, not allow access even today. There's no road access, so these are isolated so isolation, islands. isolation, Complete. Really. And then you did the, a book in the South Pacific. Let's just set the scene here a little bit. You wrote a book, uh, Sea of Lost Dreams, just in uh, 2011, and that's set in the 1920s in French Polynesia, and then another book called Ghost Sea, written in 2006, set in the Pacific Northwest in the islands halfway up the B.C. coast. Tell us, in a nutshell, what each of these novels is about. Well, it's about the beauty and uh, the enormous colorfulness and the excitement of ancient cultures. There's a lot of history I've got in there about how this culture of 8,000 years survived benignly, benign to the environment, benign to, to neighbors, and created a culture, not almost a pleasure, but you know how bad a climate is up there. They have 200 inches of rain. So the entire winter, after summer of harvesting and, and fishing, it was spent with theater. They had this enormous longhouses with uh-huh. no windows, just firelight. And they devised special effects, people being decapitated, people coming out of the grounds, ghosts coming out of the fire. Steven Spielberg would die of jealousy if he thought the theater these guys could devise. It was amazing. And the whole culture was built upon using the masks that you well know in the Northwest and the totem poles that so were... So this is the drizzly, dank winter halfway up the coast to Alaska. Exactly. <laughs> in these Indian longhouses. Yeah. You write so vividly in these books. How on earth do you do your research? How can you know what it was like generations ago in this Indian culture? Well, Rick, apart from museums and books, which are intensely important, I went to, to New York, even to the Anthropological Museum there, Natural History, and B.C. and northern northern B.C., I lived in those islands for a few months, and I sailed into every one of them and rode around every one of them and tried to go across the salal that is so deep and that you get stuck and then you can walk through it. You actually get stuck up in the air and you cannot move until somebody comes and throws you a rope. Salal is a really thick bush that grows. It's an evergreen. Oh, I've crawled. Evergreen. I've tried to hike through those. As it's a kid impossible. In, in the San Juan Islands. You end up on top of them and your leg sinks into them. And I it's would like, spend my whole afternoon. My mom would say, go for a hike. And I'd, <laughs> I'd be gone till almost dark. In, that's a word the for salal. That. Salal. <laughs> so I spent months. And the villages still existed then. This, this is 20, 30 years ago. But they still exist. Some, there were, you could find totem poles, fallen totem poles in, in the woods. And you could find dugout canoes that were used for burial, turned upside down with the skulls and the skeleton inside them. It was like Indiana Jones in these isolated and overgrown villages. Now, you can take a canoe across a strait way up there in the north end of Vancouver Island, all alone, surrounded by this vivid and lush nature. And if you didn't have any background on the culture and the history and the anthropology there, mm-hmm. you could just say, this is beautiful and I, I can hear seagulls. But if you have a context, then it's that little even, canoe ride becomes quite rich, I would think, from your novel writing needs point of view. Uh, you know, ironically, I always find that if the less I know initially, the more powerful the impression is when you get there, the more pure it is, the more personal it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've gone to some of these islands that I didn't know they were burial islands, and I, as soon as I stepped land, honest to God, as soon as I stepped foot on land, I could feel there's something strange here. And I did find skeletons, as I said, and turned over canoes. You've got to take the initiative to leave the... The cruise ship route. Oh, it's nothing to do with yeah, it. Yeah, no, you've, you've got to break out of tourism. On your own. But completely. what you're saying is you can find totem poles that are not in museums if oh, you know where to look. Rotting in the woods. And rotting in the woods. And the experience of finding that is just so rich and so thrilling, you know, compared to a, an organized tour. Well, let's just talk about that from a travel point of view, because your book, Ghost Sea, is, is sort of built around an Indian artifact, a mask. How can a traveler find traditional Native American cultures? Uh, on the west coast of Canada well, in your travels. The nice thing is there's some villages still exist, living villages. There's one called Health Bay with about 15 people, and it's very small, but it's still they still do carve canoes and they do carve masks, and they're, you're welcome to visit. And it's not terribly commercial at this point. Right. And there's some very good museums up in Alert Bay. There's one beautifully designed. 
the Museum of Anthropology in Vancouver, you know, that, that Erickson, fantastic oh, yeah. Erickson building, is very, very beautiful. Also in thing. Victoria, there's a great... Uh, the Royal Museum has a good section on, on masks. Wonderful yeah. section there. But the whole thing, you have to understand, the masks were so important, they weren't just for play. They actually represented stories, ancestral stories, which were the history of those people. They didn't have a written history. So the dances and the songs around these masks were the entire history, the entire ownership of pieces of land or rights to hunting grounds, all that kind of stuff. So, so, it was, so it's tribes. vitally important. It wasn't decoration. Ferenc Maté is our navigator today on the good ship Travel with Rick Steves. His novels, in which the sea is the leading character, are called Sea of Lost Dreams, released in 2011, and Ghost Sea, which he wrote in 2006. We have links to Ferenc and his books in the online notes that accompany this week's show. And you can uncover that treasure each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. It seems to me there's two kinds of sailors. There's people that want to get somewhere by boat and they like where they're going, and there's other people that really treasure the actual being at sea. Oh. So far you've talked about getting to these remote spots, but I know from reading your book that a big part of the, the richness of being at sea is actually being at sea. I tell you nothing like being in a storm or being a few hours at sea, in a sailboat especially, because it's, it's all you. It's yeah. all what, you, the, what rope you pull. It doesn't, you're not assisted by anything. It's your wisdom and your knowledge and your stupidity that gets you where you're going. Well, this is kind of what <laughs> relates to the quote that you start your book, Ghost Sea, a, a quote from Joseph Conrad. And tell me, wasn't that the best time, that time when we were young at sea, young and had nothing, on the sea that gives nothing except hard knocks and sometimes a chance to feel your strength, that only. You're just naked in the world. There. You know, after, after I read that, I thought, I am never going to write another line again. <laughs> it says it all. <laughs> you can go through in a few hours so much excitement, so much pleasure of using every part of your body and your brain because you're, you, this is even before GPSs. You have to navigate, you have to think of every headland. Where are you? It's so easy to get lost in these islands, especially, and it's dangerous. I mean, you have 15, 16 knot rapids with rocks everywhere, with no visibility into the water, There's fog and rain everywhere. But you feel so alive having gone through it, you wouldn't exchange it for anything, you know? Does it bring out something more human when we're so exposed to nature, or does it actually I unlock think, something more more primal? I think this, that's us. We were built for that. We were built to move and to to struggle and to enjoy life and to be f afraid and happy and terrified and, and exalted. You know, we're, and, and we're and, creatures living in cubicles looking at screens that have... Oh, my God. We have, <laughs> we have not evolved physically as fast as we've evolved in our lifestyles, so maybe we still have that hunger to be out there in the elements because when you think of people who have high-pressure lives, their escape is into their sailboat Isn't so that often. True? Yeah. Isn't that true? But the beauty, Rick, I mean, especially places like Tahiti, Marquesas, where nature is still dominant, and the, the visions of things that you see at night in total isolation, away from any cities, away from anybody else, the, the emotions of those kind of things. The islands here at night in, in this inland sea of ours, you know, up where the Kwakutl were, and this is described in Go Sea, the magic of those still waters, where you can't see whether the reflection is the real thing or the, or the mm. mountain is the real thing. The stars, the, the, the odors, the wolves howling that in this wilderness, it just brings up something in you that you think, ha, this is what I was born for, you know? Watching your face <laughs> and listening to your, those image, letting those images just explode in my brain, I was a little bit sad because I thought a lot of people will never have those experiences. And anybody, almost anybody can have them if they just take the initiative to get up there. I think uh, somebody quoted you said, uh, this could only have been written by a deep water sailor. You know, what, what does that mean to you? Well, uh, there's a lot of storm sequences, especially in the uh, Sea of Lost Dreams. There's a passage that they take from Mexico down to the Marquesas, which is a 30-day passage even in, in any circumstance, any sailboat, and they encounter sort of a hurricane. And I was off to the Oregon coast stupidly when I was young in a 32-foot sailboat in November <laughs> when it was snowing. And we left near Bay, got some gas at the gas station there, and the guy says in a snowstorm, says, where the hell are you going? He says, we're just going down to San Diego. And says, oh, you, Wait a second. It's, you'll it's be November, back. It's November, a snowstorm, <laughs> a 32-foot end of November, boat. after my birthday, which is a 12. <laughs> what is that like, being out there? Oh, my God. It was, we motored for the first day, sailed for two days, and we encountered a storm, Rick, which we're in about 12 hours. The seas were up to the spreaders, which are probably about 15 to 20 feet, but so steep and so violent that we, actually, we saw a freighter the day after rolling in the sea from gunnel to gunnel. So one gunnel would go underwater, then thing would roll. I mean, you can imagine how big the seas were. The violence of the sea, the boat was fine. I mean, it was, a, it was an ocean-going boat, a West Sail 32 built to go around the world. I mean, it creaked and it leaked a little bit, and the vibration of the rigging and the noise and of the things smashing around down below. 
and the power of the sea is so great that that you feel like the most powerful human being in the world when you when you actually manage to survive that, you know. And nothing will scare you after that. You, and there's no fear of death. It's strange enough. I was never afraid to die. I thought, well, you die, you die. But the notion that you have to use your brains all the time to figure out what to do, what sail to take down next, how to handle the next waves. Actually, we had to turn around. The wind was so great off Northern California. We'd been out there for days running out of food, and we didn't have enough charts. As a rookie captain, never captained the boat before. And the owner of the boat was a gas station and never sailed in his life before. Huh. And me, stupid and young, wanting to feel, what, what feel that, the power of the sea. <laughs> what does that do with the uh, bonding and the camaraderie? Do you feel like you're stuck with a bunch of fools and you could have lost your life? Or do you come out of that thinking, yes, we came together and we, we beat it? Well, there were a lot of things that, that there were, we were missing charts for the coast. And even though the captain was very calm through it all and knew how to handle the sails, that was scary. And I had to get back to work at that stage where I was going to get fired. But you, yeah, you came, you came to the point where you trusted each other very, very greatly. But most of all, it really brought you face to face with yourself, how much you could handle, what is really and what's important to you and how much you can take. And when we turned around, we had no self-steering, so we had to actually steer the boat by hand, a tiller. Mm-hmm. And we turned around, we, we still take two or three hour shifts. And I said, I'll take all your shifts. It's so much fun out here at night to sail the boat, surfing down at 10 knots down these huge waves. You know, so, because you have to one man- little sail. You have to be at the helm you had to steer all night long. Or the boat would turn over. You know, so, you somebody's to... got to be up for doing the shift from four till Yeah, from four till And the other two had to sleep or they would die of, of fatigue. Right. You know, and exhaustion, so, you're there so. all alone, really, and under the stars. And, and it's and, a uh, thrill you wouldn't believe. It's like. Why? Tell me about that. Well, uh, the at most, the helm at well, four o'clock okay, in the morning. A boat can only sail. It's hull speed, okay? That, that, that given boat can only sail at six knots, right. top, top right. speed. We had a little sail up. It's a little storm jib, and we were doing nine to ten knots because we were sliding down. No, we were surfing, okay? Right. We, had the cre- right. we caught the wow. crest, but you had to sort of feel the, you had to put the boat into the, the crest of the wave and hold it there so that it would not be and swamped and it would not go too fast down the wave because then it pitch pulls at the bottom of the crest. You have to anticipate the waves and so on, and are they lit just you, by the stars? You the can't moon? see any. You feel it. You can. You can see Is it black, or do you have no? You can see glints? no. No, there's white crest. You know, it's yeah. so windy that they get white foam blowing off the wave behind you, so you can't see it coming. Lit by the moon. No, there's no moon. This is Oregon. It's, the cloud cover was like 100 feet yeah, off the ground. Yeah, so it could be almost dark. <laughs> it is almost dark. But the white does, the white things like the foam and the sails you do see. But you mostly feel the movement of the boat. And you feel the pressure on the tiller and the keel. And that's what you react to, you know. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're at sea with Ferenc Maté. He's written two sea novels. One's called Sea of Lost Dreams, set in the 1920s in French Polynesia. And the other is The Ghost Sea, set in the Pacific Northwest, halfway up the coast of uh, British Columbia. And we're talking about how you can be inspired to uh, embrace life by spending time at sea. From what I've learned uh, from reading your books about, you know, the good life in Tuscany and so on, you're really passionate about community and family and friends. And when I think about sailing, it doesn't occur to me that that would be in sync with the beauty of community, but you're enthusiastic about sailing. Talk about community and sailing. Well, amongst sailors, there's enormous natural community. Of course, it's about you're by yourself, and you're relying only on the crew that you're with. But once you get into the harbor, the bond is almost instant. Of course, you have instant topic, instant experiences. I spent the last few weeks restoring the boat that we have now because it's sort of abandoned itself, the poor thing. And there are people who live on their boats. This is near Victoria. The friendship is so absolutely spontaneous. You're at somebody's dinner, somebody's cockpit for a beer. Somebody comes over to help you. As soon as you need a hand... Instantly ask the guy next door, can you give me a hand hoisting a sail? You need something, somebody's there to help. The fraternity is astounding among sailors. It's you one know, of the last true kind of spontaneous and transportable communities. And transportable is the, a key word there because I've talked with people who have actually just been vagabonds living out of their boat all over the world, and everywhere they go, they've got community. And instant friends. It's instant, a beautiful thing. And it's an important friendship where you actually rely on somebody for basic needs, you know. And there are basic And your needs. life. You and your life, life. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, you write vividly about raging currents and whirlpools, and some of my most romantic and exciting memories as a child on my on my parents' boat was going through the rapids, oh. uh, especially on the west coast of Canada. Uh, let's finish off just with a sort of an adventure with our, our rapids when the tide is wrong. Okay, you got, given the background, especially at Stewart Island, there's a set of rapids. It's very long. It's a dog's leg, and it's a two-mile set of rapids. And let's set it up first with the, with the tide because uh, a sailor will... For people who haven't been there, you know, you can hit it at the wrong time or the right time, oh, right? You can, you can actually only go through at slack because an hour after slack tide is when the tide turns. That's the slack tide. So slack tide. would be just after high tide or just, or just after, after low, low tide. tide. It's okay. about so half hour. if you don't want adventure, you plan it for that. That's the only time you go through. It's the only time you're physically capable of going through. I've seen winter photographs of this, 
and this place sucks down scows. You, yeah. It looks like, a, looks like a, a hurricane wave after another hurricane wave. So what we're talking about is a narrow passage between two land masses where the water has to flush through as the tide's moving one way or the other. Yeah, but don't forget, you're feeding 50-mile inlets. So the amount of water that has to come in and out every six hours is phenomenal. You know, you actually get 15, 16-knot currents going through there, and no river runs that fast. But it's not a river, okay? This is, you have to pass. It's fighting the last tide to go in the other direction. It's got whirlpools that and these whirlpools literally are, suck down scows. They're flushing scows. like giant toilets. <laughs> and one goes in one direction, and two feet over, the next one goes in another direction. One time, we had some family illness, and we were sailing back from up north, and we came to these rapids, or close to them. And my wife, who does navigation, had to fly out. So uh, I was looking at the tide tables. I was with my son, who was only 10 years old at the time. And I said, Okay, I've got the slack perfectly, no problem, we're going through. And we started motoring, it was a pissing rain. I mean, it was foggy and horrible. We have no cover at all. We're just sitting out there taking it with our foul weather gear on. And I think, why are there no other boats around? Maybe it's the bad weather. And then we started getting into the pass. And I think, there's an awful lot of movement here in this water. <laughs> maybe, maybe it has something to do with the wind. <laughs> and and we kept going. I said, well, it's too late to turn around now. And it got more and more violent. All of a sudden, I look back, and there was a six-foot wave came from behind us. They pop out of the middle of nothing because, you know, it's not a wind wave. It's a tidal pool wave. And this wave stood right up about six feet above us, came right on board, pushed us both down in the cockpit, washed over the boat and vanished. Never came again. And I just said, okay, kid, hang on. We're going through. And we served through that thing and came through. And it was, this was like, I think I missed by an hour. It wasn't even, the biggest run is like three or four hours into Whoa. it. And so this was like just the beginning. And So you missed slack tide by an hour and you had that And that was, that was enough. And Something your son will never so forget. So the stories come out of real experience in these things, you know. That's great. Ferenc Mate, author of Sea of Lost Dreams and Ghost Sea, thanks so much for sharing your passion for the sea and what you've learned from it. Well, thank you for letting me relive it all. You can share your travel impressions and memories with us in the form of a haiku poem. There's a link to send us your original haiku in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are a few great ones that we recently got that we think you might enjoy. Christine Kuenhoven from Baltimore sends us a set of haiku impressions about the birds and fish she saw on her trip to Anguilla in the Lesser Antilles. Sugar and water, to tempt you, sweet little bird, you capture our hearts. Minnows scatter like confetti as the houndfish glistens on the scene. All strut and bustle, jaunty plumed tail, coxcomb crown, this lot, your kingdom. Frigate bird flying above, elegant, below, soaring stingray sails. And she adds this one about observing Orion in the night sky. I always seek you broad-shouldered, bright-belted night of the starry sky. Next, we consider the great variety of outdoor recreation you'll find in France, from the sea and coastal trails to fun along its canals, plus some of Europe's best skiing in the Alps. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait. Je voyage... Right, when oui. I say je voyage souvent, de temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steve. Wow, You're, you've picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steve. you got to sound like Maurice Chevalier or something, and it's it's actually good, or Inspector Clouseau. Well, so many Americans, too. You know, like I've got a friend in Paris, probably the least self-conscious person I know. In elle parle français comme ça. Yeah. And when you go to a restaurant, excusez-moi, mais j'ai commandé <laughs> la salade niçoise sans la tone. <laughs> oh. France is a great place for those who love the outdoors. The varied geography provides just the right setting for about every type of outdoor sports and recreation you can imagine, from sailing and swimming in warm Mediterranean waters to cycling at your own pace along a centuries-old canal path, and even skiing at Olympic venues high in the Alps. Joining us to take your calls at 877-333-7425 is Virginie Moray. She's a professional tour guide based in France, and right now she's our coach and exercise partner as we get out and about in France. 
Virginie, thanks for joining us. Bonjour, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, now you're a guide in France, and you take a lot of Americans around, and we expect to see the urban aspect of the French people. Tell us about the love of outdoors of French people. Well, definitely. We have to actually do some activities to just lose the calories we got with the croissant and all of the butter that we have. And what we have to keep in mind is that many of our figures known for sports are actually from France. Coubertin, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, actually created the modern Olympics. That's right. So they, that was what, 1890-something? 1904 was the first one. The first modern Olympics mm-hmm. done thanks to a Frenchman. So we do have some active people in France. <laughs> We're not just eating all the time. And then you obviously know about uh, Cousteau. Even though he did not invent, I mean, scuba diving started in the in the U.S., but he actually invented the new form, what we actually put on when we go scuba diving. So we do have some famous figures in France. We know we have artists, but we do have sports figures. And you're also. a scuba diver. I'm a scuba diver. And also. if you're a scuba diver, and if you're enthusiastic about scuba diving, and you're going to France, what well, can you do? Well, the good thing about France is that we do have a very varied geography. So we have a lot of coast, and you could go in cold water in Brittany. Or you could go to Corsica and you would see different things underwater. Whether you're snorkeling or scuba diving, enjoying the coast is something that the French love to do. And they usually, especially when it gets hot in Paris, they like to do by, go by the coast. That's right. You got all the way from the English Channel, basically, mm-hmm, down to Italy and Corsica. The, definitely. The, the, the A lot of, of kayaking and uh, lots of things, windsurfing that you can do by the sea. So either, either you're an avid outdoor person, very active, or you can just relax and take a sailboat and learn how to sail. Now, when you think of beach activity and sailboats, I also think of canals in France. There's a lot of canals, and perhaps the most exercise you're going to get is cranking open the locks. Definitely walking out of the boat and back into the boat, but you can also uh, bike along the canal, and it's very easy biking because the canals are flat. So this would be gentle outdoor activity. You go on a canal ride, and you take a a week on the canals of France. They used to be industrial, now they're recreational. Mm -hmm. What sort of activities would you enjoy if you're on a canal for a vacation? Well, in between your meals, which are going to be very important, you're there to socialize and just enjoy the food. So you could hop off the barge and go for a walk, go talk to the person who is in charge of the lock, go to the small village, either by uh, bike, you could have a Mm -hmm. bike on the boat and take your bike, and uh, walking. The French are big on walking, too. And we got to remember, in the old days, along riverways and and canals, there were uh, towpaths. Mm-hmm. where the donkeys or the people would pull the boats. Yes, definitely. It was and today, sports. they're not pulling boats anymore, but you can use that to take a walk or a bike ride. Definitely. And they're everywhere in France. You have the Canal de Nantes-Brest in Brittany, and then you have the Canal du Midi, which is more, more famous. So everywhere you could be doing this kind of activities in France. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking about outdoor adventures to burn off some of those calories because we're going to be eating really well in France. And our guest is a French guide, Virginie Moret. Virginie, when you think about France, you think of beautiful parks, and I also think about signs that say, stay off the grass in the beautiful parks. What is it with French and beautiful parks, but don't go on the grass? Well, we like to keep our grass pretty clean. But you know, I have a nice shot I took in the Jardin du Luxembourg in uh, Paris, and it's actually the sign on the, the foreground. And then we have a bunch of teenagers just... Playing frisbee playing and having frisbee. a picnic. And the grass <laughs> is still perfectly cut and green, yeah. and they did stay there for a long time, and they were French, so... It is something that we try to have, the neat French lawn, garden, but... So you have your nice, beautiful parks with the beautiful flower beds and the wonderful, you know, mansion nearby and the monuments and the art and the, and the statues. And you also have opportunity to enjoy that while jogging. Uh, Americans love to go out jogging. Is this popular in France? This is something that's starting to... A little bit of starting in France, but we don't really do a lot of sports like jogging or going to the gym. We do a lot more hiking. Well, tell People, us about that, the rondinet, right? The randonnée, definitely. We had what we call the GR, G-R, and we have two very famous ones. The most famous and one of the hardest in France is the GR 30, which is in Corsica. You can cross Corsica, and this will be a lot of adrenaline. So this, there's a lot of mountains in Corsica. Definitely. Or you can take it easy. Some parts yeah. of it are easier. So randonnée, R-O-R-A-N-D-O-N-E-E-S. Double N, E with the accent E-S. Okay, and that means... Hiking. Long hiking, not just hiking. a hike, but mm-hmm. is it just hiking or are there long routes? Marche à pied is just when you go walking. Uh, randonnée doesn't mean you take a backpack, but you are going to go hiking for a long time. It doesn't have to be going up the mountains. but So the uh, Corsica is a beautiful place for some wild mm-hmm. hiking. Where else would you like to hike? The other place, and I'm being biased, being from Brittany, but we have a long coast. We talked about that. And we do have the GR34, and 
34. They're numbered. Oh, number number 34. 34. So trail number 34. And it goes... Ah, the the trail number 34. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) And it goes all along the coast of Brittany, and it would be about a... It would be a thousand miles. Now, that is a beautiful route. I've done a little bit of that just exploring in my car and over the years, and the the rugged coast... If you like the Oregon coastline Mm -hmm. in the United States... Check out the coastline of Britain. Definitely. And the origin of those were actually for Coast Guard. Why, why would it be for the, the Coast, Coast Guard? The Coast Guard were actually checking oh, that to, the British to, to were not. You know, we had, oh, we that, had someone checking. Coast we were talking about a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, there were people on those trails. So that's a military trail or road. Military or actually, uh, they were checking, just making sure that they didn't see boat and then they could walk all along yeah. the, uh, the coast. Oh, and you got, can actually hike nowadays. If, and if you got the English just across the water, you need that. Definitely. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking at things from a French perspective here with Virginie Moret. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We're talking about getting out and getting some exercise in France. And Nicole is on the line from Victoria in British Columbia. Nicole, thanks for your call. Yes. Hello. My question about uh, cycling in France, um, something gentle um, for people who don't cycle very often, such as myself, and particularly um, routes that include visits to wineries. Definitely. Mm. Bonjour first. Cycling, you, you first have to figure out what kind of wine you like. What, what's your favorite wow. wine? Do you know? No, I'm still, like, I'm still learning about that. Well, definitely. Then France is a good place to learn and cycling at the same time is a good way to burn those calories we were talking yeah. about. And uh, Burgundy is a nice place because you don't have too many mountains. So it's never going to be something too hard. And you can make definitely stops at different wineries. I've done that okay, in Burgundy, great. and it is wonderful. Uh, Nicole, there are so many beautiful little villages and proud houses in the country that are famous for their wine, and they open up to visitors. Uh, uh-huh. And there's uh, beautiful uh, little back lanes and bike paths and so on, and plenty of places to rent bikes. Also, Alsace would be good. Alsace would be nice to try different white wines. And the good thing with the road system in France is that you can always avoid the big roads, so you're not going to have the traffic. You're going to have the small roads on the side just this for is, you. This is so French. We're talking about bike riding. <laughs> well, if you like white wine, you go to Alsace, and if you like red wine, you go to Burgundy. There you go. Have a good, have a good time, Nicole. Thank Bye-bye. Au revoir. Bye. And Karen's on the line in Greenville, Texas. Hi. Hi there. Hello. I just had a quick question. My husband has always wanted to ride part of the Tour de France for his 50th birthday. And I was just wondering if there were any places to find out what, because I know that, you know, tours at different places each year, if there would be a good place for a 50 to 100 mile ride. Hmm. Well, they do give the schedule ahead of time and, uh, it's a long, long race, and uh, oh, yeah. and what is it? Twenty? It's thirty six hundred kilometers, so that would be about right. twenty two hundred miles. Yes, all over France, and they get it. You know, you got your your level uh, stretches, and you got your very mountainous stretches. That's why I was wondering because we were wondering about a mid thing. You know, not the mountains. <laughs> you can definitely check their website, and the website they do have nice uh, graphics that shows the elevation, how much of the elevation you're going to gain, and it shows you the distance. And you could do it after or before the people, actually, but not with them. I but don't think the route changes oh, yeah, every no. time, doesn't the it? The route changes. It always finishes in Paris, but the route changes every time. And that's a very good way to discover France. And people in France love to receive the Tour de France in their their ah, hometown because it's good that's business. A great thing. It brings a lot of tourists. People love cycling in France, like Americans love cycling too. The only real place that's the same with every Tour de France is that Champs Elysees stretch. They do it what ten mm-hmm. or twelve times back yes, and forth from the uh, Arc, uh, mm-hmm. the Place de la Concorde up to the Arc de Triomphe, back and forth and back and forth. You could do that if you wanted to. Definitely, that would, <laughs> for sure. This one you would do. But Karen, if you go on the website le, le Tour de France.fr, I'm sure something similar to this. I would think maybe a six to nine months before you would find a small place. Yeah. Okay, great. But Karen, Thank you. Karen, you You're could welcome. probably drive any bit of road in France, and sooner or later it's going to be a stretch of the Tour de France. Oh. Every time it's a different route. Definitely. That's true. Have fun on your trip. Bye-bye. Thank you. And Paul's on the line in Kailua, Hawaii. Paul, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Thank you. Um, hey, I had a question about uh, skiing. I've had a great time going to uh, Chamonix for a couple of days. And then I went to uh, Val di Zarentina for two weeks and a week in Les Menuire in the Trois Valley. And uh, I wondered if uh, you guys could recommend another place for me to try out. Virginia, what about skiing in France? I've done a lot of skiing in the United States. and uh, But in France, what you have is all of the opportunity of taking the lift. So have you been to the Thousand Lift place? It's in between uh, France, Italy, and Switzerland. Thousand Lift? What is that? Thousand Lift. You actually have Thousand Lift. So you can actually... Take a lift. You don't have to use your car or anything like that. You can be actually skiing for days on, going from small chalet to small chalet with your skis. 
and you actually never have to go back to your hotel or take a car or anything like this or a bus because you have a thousand lifts, ski lifts. Literally a thousand lifts. Mm-hmm. So it's many different uh, areas wow. connected in one ticket. Yes, definitely. It's in different lot. countries also? Between Italy, Switzerland, and France. All around Mont Blanc? All around wow. the area. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds great. So you do get a lot of, you know, there are a lot of things that you could actually be doing. You can't say you're bored with the same lift every day. Definitely not. <laughs> and, and you have mountain chalets. <laughs> and mountain chalets. So and It's actually, the, I have a friends in Switzerland and they're a lot into skiing. They do that from ah. age two and they just, they just love doing this because it's, you know, you get, as long as you get further away, you get less people at the lift and you get a different atmosphere of being the only one on top of the world over there. So, But you always have a nice uh, restaurant waiting for you in the Definitely, evening. Definitely. You'll have a way to have food. We have to <laughs> after a day of skiing. So uh, I'm sure you'll find uh, there are lots of places. You've already had pretty experience. You had the, the nice places, Chamonix, Val d'Isère, all of that. Oh, that was great. Hey, Paul, what was it like skiing in Chamonix? Yeah. I love hiking in Chamonix. What was it like skiing there? Did you go up to a Guido Midi? Do people uh, go up to a Guido Midi? Uh, I did that uh, last summer, but I didn't do it on skis, and I kind right. of feel bad that I didn't. Although I have to say the entrance into it looks really intimidating. Uh, but I, I hear in winter they put a cable up and you, you can hook onto it. To get down from a Guidumidi, you mean? Yes, to get down from the, uh, from the exit to the uh, floor of the Valley Blanche. Yeah. Uh, the first couple hundred meters, it's not for the faint of heart. No, I can't sure. imagine. That's as high as you can get mechanically in Europe. That's, I believe, 12,600 feet above sea level. It's amazing. You're looking over at Mount Blanc. And Paul, being from it, Hawaii, it <laughs> n- next time you go, uh, you know, in the summer in France, and if you go to Mont Blanc, I mean, a challenge for you could be to uh, ski down in a swimsuit. I've uh, actually had a friend who did that. So you may look, <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to pack a different suitcase for you. It could be a good idea. A beach bum from Hawaii skiing down Mont Blanc. <laughs> They'll be in the newspaper. Hey, I have to tell you, uh, I have a great story from Chamonix. What's that? And this was like my first trip to France in 30 years. And I was hell-bent, bound, and determined to walk out of this ski shop with a pair of rental skis without speaking a word of English. So I got out my pocket dictionary, and I read a couple of lines, and I walked in, and I started speaking my really bad French, and I kept looking up words. The guy was kind of asked me, you know, what uh, I needed and everything, and, and finally, after about five minutes of this, he breaks down and says, hey, dude, what do you need? I, I speak perfect <laughs> English. What, what do you want? That's so often the case, isn't it? You do your best in French, you almost fail, and they go, okay, you're home free, we'll speak English with you. But the French love it, that you yeah, try. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, but That's the he, best. Did, he did so much. He said, I have so many people come in here, they expect because they have money that I'm going to adapt my store and my country to their wallets, and here you come in my store and you respect my culture and you, and you make the best effort. What can I do for you? He gave me a great deal. He said, oh, forget the coupon from the hotel. I have a better price from you. <laughs> oh, and, very nice. And here, come, come look at this. It's snowing tonight, but it's windy. So we have to look at the map, and I will show you where the snow will blow up the valley, and you can find this tomorrow where nobody else can find. Oh, now, you and, made a friend, uh, and you got an insider's tip. He gave me a, a great price and the insider tip. And I'll tell you, in Hawaii, they, they ain't telling you where the secret break is. <laughs> <you> know. <laughs> Thanks, Paul, for your call, Thank and happy you. travels. Okay, thank you very much for your help with that uh, suggestion. Take care. Bye-bye. And Ed's on the line in Sanford, Florida. Ed, thanks for your call. Uh, Hi, Rick. Great show. Thank Um, you. I just wanted to remind visitors of the wonderful uh, Pyrenees and how easy it is to get to them from the Lourdes side. So let's remind our, our listeners the Pyrenees are the great mountains that separate France and Spain. And a lot of people go to Lourdes for the um, the pilgrimage site and the miracle site there, Lourdes. And just next to that is the Cirque de Gavarni. What a beautiful place. Have you been there, Ed? Yes, uh, we were there last summer in Lourdes. We got to um, do our own mini tour of, of the mountains. What kind of tours? Hiking tours? Bus- hiking tours. Ah, okay. Uh, the one for the Cirques, which is um, mountains. In one day we visited all three, the Gavarni, Astov, and Tremuz. And it was wonderful. I have never seen such a mountain formation. Uh, the cirques are called cirques because they're kind of semi-circular uh, bowls. Yeah. They're solid walls. Oh, it's, on it's... the other side, you can see the Monte Perdido, which is the, the Spanish side of the national park on the Spain side. I'll never forget being at the base of the Cirque de Gavarni, and you've got that sort of a mountain amphitheater all around you and a beautiful meadow and all these dramatic peaks around you, and 
you just were in Lourdes, where all the pilgrims are, and it's just a, a powerful, beautiful, beautiful experience. And you'd recommend it as a base for hiking, then? Let's remind people that the highest waterfall in France is located uh, uh, right there in Gavarnie, at yeah. the base of the Surf de Gavarnie. You know, there's a, a lot of the greatest hikes are in, in the Pyrenees, and people don't uh, respect that. The Alps are so famous, but we should be sure to check out the Pyrenees. Thanks, Ed, for your call. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Virginie Moray, and we're talking about the way to enjoy France in the outdoors. Virginie, just let's wrap it up with your advice. If you were welcoming one of our listeners to your home country, what would you do to distinguish your trip by enjoying the outdoors of France? So whether you like the ocean or you like the mountains, France has really a lot of luck with the geography. We have everything. So if you're more an ocean person and you would like to glide on quiet, not rough seas in Brittany, not too often, but it does happen that it's not rough, I would advise kayaking Les Sept Îles. Les Sept Îles, which is the seven islands on the north coast of Brittany. We even have seals there. Kayaking so you could on be the kayaking. islands off the coast of Brittany. Mm-hmm. And observe wildlife and seals. This is something that Americans enjoy in their backyard, but yeah. we do have this in France too. If you're more into the mountains, but not the high mountain, the Massif Central, which is in the center of, uh, of France, are old volcanoes. And if you're into something extreme and enjoying the sunrise, maybe paragliding, the Massif Central mountains, old mountains, volcanoes, would make something of your trip very different. Sounds like a way to distinguish your yes. adventures in France. Virginie Moray, thank you so much for helping thank us Thank you out. so much, Rick. And I'll see you, I think I'll choose kayak. Okay, sounds good. See you there. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for website help to Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can chat with Rick and his guests in our next recording sessions for Travel with Rick Steves. Go to the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Include your email address in the link on the right-hand side of the page and then we can notify you of our next set of recording dates and topics. That's where you can join us as a caller on the show. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.